series road trip. Um, this summer is not the most conducive to vacations. So we figured, why don't we take a virtual vacation together? And we're going to hear the stories of people who live all over the country, from, from California to Kansas to Ohio, and uh, let people share their stories. And it's been great so far. Thank you to everybody who's participated. And today we have uh, some people who I appreciate greatly coming to us all the way from Goodyear, Arizona, which if you're not from the Phoenix area, that may not sound far away, but I'm, I'm in Chandler. Goodyear is a suburb of Phoenix, but it's an hour drive one way. So all the way from Goodyear, Arizona, let's welcome Jim and Candy Selgo. Are you here? I can hear you. Welcome, Hi. Jim and Candy. Hi, Ryan. Welcome this morning. Appreciate you both being on. Thank you so much. And um, uh, we in, I invited you just to share your story. I got to know you a few months ago. You've been coming to the well since, I think, November of last year. You were fellow Ohioans and uh, got to hear your story. And I thought we have to share their story with everybody. And there is some background noise. Yeah, we're, we're getting it, too, from this end. I'm Interesting. Okay. It, it, it didn't happen until you came on. So. Yeah, right. See, that's what I do to everything. I bring background noise to everything. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you share, and I'm going to mute, and hopefully it'll stop. Okay. Okay. And we tested this earlier, didn't we? And this didn't happen. So first of all, I'm going to ask you some questions. You'll be on full screen, and I'll mute. So first of all, tell us about your lives. You know, How did you meet? How did you end up in Arizona? Just introduce yourselves to us. All right, first of all, thank you, uh, Ryan. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you inviting us here today to be able to, to share uh, some of our story. Uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, we have a long story, obviously, with uh, uh, being as old as we are. Uh, however, uh, we'll try to do a good job of encapsulating uh, that in order to uh, kind of share uh, what we're about. But anyhow, um, just going back, Candy was uh, born and, and raised in the northwest corner of Ohio. Uh, we were from a little town called Pettisville, Ohio. Pettisville is about four to 500 people uh, in the community. Uh, we had no stoplights, no police, no fire department. Um, so it's a rural farming community, a Mennonite uh, community in northwestern Ohio. Um, so she was... Uh, born and raised in there, but uh, I was born in Port Clinton, Ohio. And uh, when I was about three, my family moved to Phoenix. Um, and we were only here for a year and a half or two years uh, before we moved back to Ohio uh, and to Pettisville is where my dad uh, was a teacher and a coach uh, at Pettisville School. Uh, now, Pettisville School is a K-12 building. It is just, uh, uh, you know, so we start at one end of the building and you move through the grades up through high school. Uh, and so Candy was a, a year behind me in school, but we went to school uh, the entire time uh, at that, that uh, school, K-12 uh, building. So um, that's kind of, you know, uh, in a town of four or 500 people, you kind of know everybody. And, and uh, Candy and I started dating um, when we were in high school. So we were high school sweethearts. Uh, and we had uh, <clears throat> mentioned that uh, it was actually 48 years ago this last Friday that we had our first date. 
So we have uh, been married almost 42 years. Uh, that that uh, anniversary will be coming up shortly. And so uh, we got married uh, right before my senior year of college. And then uh, since that time, uh, after I graduated, uh, I was a teacher and a coach uh, for six years. And uh, then I became an elementary school principal. Uh, which I did for the last 27 years of my career in public education. Uh, and I did that in Ohio, in Farmington, New Mexico, and also in Arizona here. Um, but <clears throat> Candy was a, uh, a stay-at-home mom for our kids. We have, we have two children. And uh, when they got to high school age, she began working outside the home. So she was... Um, uh, working uh, at one at one time as administrative assistant in a car dealership. She also worked at the radio station, and uh, most recently here for the last twelve years, uh, before retiring last month, she was administrative assistant uh, at our old um, neighborhood community center uh, in Northeast Phoenix. So um, that's a little bit about our background in, in terms of how we got to Arizona. Uh, my grandmother, uh, as I told you, I lived here when I was little, don't remember a lot about that, but my grandmother lived out here in Mesa for a number of years, and we would always come out as a family to visit. And for some reason, uh, I grew to love the desert in the Southwest, and so we always had our goal of, of trying to get out here, and, and that's what brought us back. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And, and uh, yeah, when I unmute, I hear some crazy noise between us. I don't know if the folks out, out here are hearing that or not. Maybe somebody could comment on the Facebook page to uh, let us know if they hear that, that noise or not, but hopefully not. Um, but we tested this earlier and then here we are, of course. So if you would now tell us about your spiritual background, your, your spiritual slash church background. Um, you, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, we had, we had, different backgrounds. Candy, um, when, she, when she grew up, uh, it was in a situation where uh, she was uh, dropped off at the, at the uh, Mennonite church uh, for Sunday school uh, in church. Um, so her family didn't really attend uh, all throughout her early life. Um, I grew up with, uh, my father was a Lutheran and my mother was a Catholic. Uh, however, my mother never went to the Catholic church. She always came to church with us. And so I grew up those, you know, uh, up until my freshman year in high school, uh, I grew up uh, in the Lutheran church. We would just go once a week on Sundays. We, we faithfully attended, um, but we, we did not go to catechism. Uh, my brothers and I, I have two brothers. Um, and my mother was not allowed to take communion in a Lutheran church. So my dad was the only one allowed to take communion. And that kind of frustrated him. So uh, when I was a freshman in high school, we uh, went to the little uh, local non-denominational uh, Bible church in our little town of Pettisville um, and made that transition. So Candy and I, uh, when we started dating in high school, then she would come with me to youth group and to uh, to church. And so ever since that time, we were involved in the, the evangelical uh, church, if you will, uh, all over the country. Um, we did uh, attend some denominations, 
like uh, Methodist Church a couple of times because that's all that was available in our community. Um, so anyhow, we we uh, grew up, uh, spent you know our own basically entire adult life in the evangelical church, and uh, up until uh, November of 2016, uh, when we left the evangelical church, uh, we had been active participants uh, there. So uh, that's kind of our, our church background and where we're coming from. And I guess I, I kind of wanted to make a little disclaimer too, uh, before I talk a little later in that, uh, we want to make sure that everyone understands that, um, you know, our our thoughts and, and opinions. Um, we're not we're not trying to demean any any church or denomination or even any faith. Uh, that we want to make sure that uh, everyone understands that uh, we, we just have to have a, a realization of that to understand our background and, and how we got to where we're at. Yeah, thank you. And and it is just me, I think. By the way. When, <laughs> you're okay now when i come on okay well hey maybe we exercise the demons who knows what happens so um thank you for sharing and and um so now when we met and you told me your story i i was struck by a particular part of your spiritual journey so um your son lance came out to you in his 20s and that caused you to look at church differently and so will you tell us about how that happened and, and how that has changed your journey? Sure. Um, he would, Lance would always visit us um, from Texas and we would always um, go to church as a family. And um, Jim and I had noticed that the church that we were attending um, was starting kind of to present a more negative message, more of exclusion rather than inclusion. So uh, the next time that Lance was um, going to come visit us, I remember Jim asking, um, you know, are we going to you know, go to church like we normally do as a family? And I said, no. I said, you know, I don't want to subject Lance to that negativity, especially a feeling of um, him being less than and I think for me to hear myself say that out loud, that no, I don't want him to come to church, that was like a wow factor. And it was kind of like the turning point. So it wasn't soon after that, that we actually left the church. And so I began to search online um, for um, an affirmative church, an affirming church, all inclusive, and came up with um, one church in Chandler. So we started attending there. One church, um, I would say, not only opened our hearts, but our minds into a different way of seeing God's message. And that was through the lens of Jesus and through a lens of love. And it also showed us that uh, reading those scriptures, we took it in context of you know, when those scriptures were written um the the history back then the the culture that surrounded the authors of of the scriptures back then you know what they were going through and why they wrote what they did as well as um just the, the things such as like the um the greek you know translations to english we had never been taught anything like that and where it was like wow um it was just so much more in-depth 
to us, you know, than we had ever experienced. So through that, then, I guess I like to say we just kind of started unraveling some of the beliefs that we no longer felt the same about. And it, it just kind of unraveled down to, um, you know, Jesus is the living word of God. And, you know, he creates, you know, such an example of love. And the most important thing to take out of that is God has never been a mean God. He's always loved us. He showed us that through, you know, Jesus. We just need to be awakened to that. So, um, and then with that said, then um, one church, so um, we had contacts through one church to the well, and that's what brought us to the well. Yeah, thank you. And and one church holds a special place in my heart as well. And um, thank you. And Candy, I, I think when you were sharing, there were all kinds of amens going up Aww. wherever people were watching. <laughs> and, and so now, and, and I know, of course, as you tell your story, there's so much you could say, and it's you have to leave a lot of things out. And so what, what does your faith mean to you now? I mean, you've been on this long journey. And so, yeah, talk to us a little bit about what it means to you now. Well, for me, Ryan, um, we, we first of all, I want to acknowledge uh, Travis and Kristen, who were on a couple of weeks ago uh, with you, um, because I think a lot of what I mean, I think Travis uh, and Kristen were both speaking to a lot of the same thoughts that that we now have. Uh, and I'm a little bit jealous because we went through decades of <laughs> life not asking those questions or not exploring. Mm -hmm. uh, and his responses to those questions are uh, a lot more in depth than what what I have uh, come. Uh, he's he's he did scripture and and looked at things more thoroughly. So a lot of what I'm going to say today is, I think, similar, and, except uh, it's a little simplified version of what we uh, have come to see. But, you know, I go back to the early 70s when we started in, in the church, uh, and, I, and I felt uh, it was a, uh, the love in the church and that love was uh, predominant in the church. Uh, in fact, um, one of the things... And, and, and again, the difference from the past is that we used to have, and this is right after the Vietnam War now, and we used to have these bracelets, uh, the, the POW bracelets that they had, and the church adopted those as uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do, bracelets. So we wore those as young kids, and, and they were all around, and that was the prevailing thought uh, in the church as far as how did you respond or what did you think about something, and it would be what would Jesus do? And we tried to pattern ourselves as Christ followers at that time. Um, it, was, it was a place of compassion for all people and was also a safe place for everyone to, to be. Um, but then I think in the, in the 80s, uh, when television became more prominent, uh, we had you know three or four stations only in our rural area networks. Uh, but then you started to have more networks and stations. You had Christian, Christian broadcasting networks that were on 24-7. And so as that grew, uh, they obviously had a need for uh, finances uh, to keep stay on the air. And, and I think that the shift started happening to uh, more of a prosperity gospel or prosperity theology 
uh, because they needed income and uh, you were to gladly to give to help keep their ministry going. So there was a shift from, from uh, that, that in, encompassed more of a self-centeredness, I feel, or a self-righteousness uh, and, and pride other than uh, what, what the church had originally been. So it wasn't until we, uh, you know, and, and as Candy said, I asked her to look up and find a, a church for us um, after we, we left the evangelical church. And one church uh, had a, a motto of doubts and questions are welcome. And I had never thought about that uh, in, in any way, because I, I, as, I, as I look back, I felt like I was suppressed in my thinking uh, at church. Um, and that, uh, you know, we had certain things, for example, you knew what questions to ask and what not to ask. I, I guess you kind of, it was implied. And, and you didn't want to ask those questions you weren't supposed to, because I got, you know, a little tired of hearing, you know, if I asked a question that was a little difficult, I got tired of hearing, well, God works in mysterious ways. And that's, that's all, that was the accepted answer. Um, so as we got to one church, the very first service we went to, and it was in a, in a trampoline park, uh, we had been used to, to being in a uh, large uh, cathedral type setting with a lot of people. And there were about 50 to 75 people there maybe and in folding chairs. Um, but one of the things they did, uh, and this kind of took me back because when I grew up in the Lutheran church, we did the Lord's Prayer uh, we did uh, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, uh, every every week, and so we had memorized those. Uh, I couldn't tell you what they are now, but I'll bet if somebody started in the con congregation, I could uh, mouth every word of it. So it had little meaning, meaning, but we could mouth that. But anyhow, that first Sunday in one church, uh, there was uh, we did the Lord's Prayer, and I, I have no idea why, but for some reason, uh, the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just jumped out at me, just hit me like a ton of bricks about, about God wanting us to live our life here on earth uh, and, and bringing heaven to earth. Um, because I felt then I suddenly realized there was a lot of overemphasis on everlasting life and the afterlife and, and growing up as an athlete uh, and, and, you know, we were taught, you know, never overlook your opponent, you know, don't, don't look beyond to the next games or the tournament, you know, take the next opponent. And I, and I kind of felt that that's what I was doing for my uh, spirituality was looking for heaven and everlasting life, but bypassing what was going on right here on earth with us. So, um, uh, my dad gave me some really good advice that came, you know, 45 years ago, but it, but it came to light at that time, too. And he, he said to me once, he said, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And that really just struck me again. Uh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. So uh, I, I feel uh, that there was a, a, a small phrase that came back to me. Uh, that God is blank, fill in the, in the blank with one word. God is what? And 
it, you know, the, the answer, and maybe some of you out there are thinking the same thing, but for me, it was God is love. And so, you know, I, I had to realize it, you know, it's not, I'm thinking of this old guy up, up in heaven with a long beard, um, trying to picture him that, that way, but God is love. And then, then the next one that came to me was that Christ died for blank. Um, Christ died for all. Christ died for everyone, if you're going to fill it in with, with one word. And as, as we started reading some of the books um, uh, with progressive pastors and, and teachers and leaders, um, one that I think Brian Zan said in his book once was that, uh, you know, God is not up there handling you by the scruff of your neck and dangling you over a lake of fire. You know, he's not doing that until you say the magic words or until you uh, do everything good and righteous, um, but that Christ died for everyone, period. And so we really appreciate, like, uh, the sermons that, that you deliver uh, and those that we heard in, in the Progressive Church uh, because of, and, and Candy mentioned this, the, the cultural background, the geography, maybe even. Uh, the political scene at the time, all of those things matter as far as learning and growing in your faith. Uh, and, and I feel that too often today, uh, scripture is taken out of context and you can't have, you know, one, something that was said in one sentence, you know, 2000 years ago, and it applies to uh, what product you're supposed to buy or, or what have you. So uh, anyhow, that, that's, what I would like to see uh, in, in terms of the ch church back to what would Jesus No, no. Wait. Uh-oh. Can you okay. still hear us? I, I can, yeah. So, And I there is something on my end. And so it's, I'm sorry, guys. Thank you um, so much. I mean, that's a, that's a good enough sermon right there. And uh, um, I appreciate you sharing your story. If people can hear me over the crackling, I appreciate you sharing your story and um, thank you for being a part of the well. And I want to see you soon. Yep. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Let's Bye. thank Jim and Candy. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank Bye. you so much. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, there may be electrical interference on my end. Maybe, again, thanks for commenting earlier on the Facebook feed to let me know if it was happening. Please, if you would comment now, can you hear the, the crackling noise when I talk um, or is it gone? Please let me know. And uh, um, we're in a bit of a like a 10 or 20 second delay. So I kind of have to wait 10 or 20 seconds to, to see uh, what uh, what your feedback is about whether you can hear it or not. I hope not. But um, I, I want to thank Jim and Candy so much for sharing. Wasn't that refreshing to hear what they had to say? These are folks who have been uh, seeking God for a long time, walking with God, learning, growing, uh, growing in their faith. Somebody said this, the noise is gone now. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, um, somebody said cracks are gone. Not from my face, unfortunately, but from the sound. That's good. Excellent. All right. Thank you guys so much. And, and um, to hear Jim and Candy speak with openness and thoughtfulness about their faith, what it means to them now, and how it's grown over time. That's so inspiring to me. 
And I know it is to, to so many people because you know, we're living in a time where, as, as they alluded to, so many folks think being a Christian or following Jesus Christ is about being backward, withdrawing from society, uh, becoming the moral police of society, looking down in judgment on everybody else from our ivory tower, uh, fused with politics to the extent that you can't tell where politics ends and religion begins. And so many people have been turned off by that expression of Christianity that is now common in the United States. And, and so folks like Jim and Candy and so many of you can, can look and see, well, wait a second, this doesn't represent the, the spirit of Jesus. This isn't what Jesus was doing in the Gospels, you know, the kind of religion we see around us. This isn't what Jesus was about. There are people who struggle with that, though, because they love the Bible and they take the Bible seriously as a guide for their lives or as an authority for their lives. And then it's difficult for them to deal with challenges to a view that they've been taught their entire lives and a view that has been common throughout the history of Christianity. So when Jim and Candy mentioned their son who came out to them in his 20s and their love for their son caused them to start looking at church differently and to ask questions about how they were interpreting the Bible and about what their faith meant to them because they realized in probably subtle ways and not so subtle ways that their son was not entirely welcome to fully participate in the church they were a part of. And of course, that's the case in lots of churches now. And so in the remaining time that we have, I just wanted to go through a few thoughts for people who are maybe struggling with, wait a second, how can the church fully embrace and welcome to full participation people from the LGBTQ community, like Jim and Candy's son? Because that's just a, that's just mind-blowing to so many people who have been raised their entire lives, and especially the last 50 years in this religious climate in America, where it's really about who we're against, and we're in, and who, who's out. And, and so I just wanted to share a few thoughts. So first of all, Jim and Candy alluded to uh, the first thing I wanted to, to say was, interpreting the Bible requires thoughtfulness, um, because uh, the way we interpret the Bible affects people's lives. So interpreting the Bible requires the thoughtfulness to consider the implications of how we interpret the Bible. So when we think about questions like, well, what does the Bible say about people who are gay or lesbian or, or, or bisexual or transgender? We're not just having an abstract theological discussion. We're not just engaging in some theological debate of ideas. It's just in our heads and we're just trying to figure out good theology. That's, that's not the real world. What we believe about the, the Bible and what it says about folks uh, in the LGBTQ community radically affects their lives and the lives of their family members. That's just the real world implications of how we interpret the Bible. And so for thoughtful people who do want to take the Bible seriously, who love the Bible, who want to view the Bible as a guide for our lives and, and have it 
function in some kind of authorities, you know, that somehow God speaks to us through that. It's a challenge to learn to think of the Bible in new ways. So at the well, we said lots of times, the Bible is not one book, for example. The Bible is a collection of books. We call that a library. So the Bible is a library. And it's a, a library of books written in different cultures by different people in different languages over a period of at least several hundred years. So should that factor into the way we interpret the Bible? And the folks will say, well, what about divine inspiration? Didn't God inspire the Bible? Well, Christians believe that, but of course, there's a lot of gray area about what that means, that God inspired the Bible. If, God, if the view is that God dictated the Bible, well, then that, that raises a lot more questions because um, there are different vocabularies used when we read the different, view, uh, the different books of the Bible, different, different languages. For example, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, starts off in Hebrew, switches to Aramaic, and then back to Hebrew. So if God dictated the book of Daniel to its author, God like changed languages in the middle of the book. And, and, and then of course, like in the New Testament, the gospel of Mark was written by somebody, it was written in Greek, but somebody who's probably not, probably not a native Greek speaker because the grammar is not so great. And so when Matthew and Luke borrow heavily from Mark, probably because so much of Mark appears in Matthew and Luke, they clean up Mark's grammar. And so if God dictated the Bible to the authors, well, and when he dictated to Mark, God's grammar wasn't so great. And then the grammar got cleaned up later. So dictation is not really a theory of inspiration that seems to work. So it's, it's going to be something else other than that. So as thoughtful people, we realize that the Bible has to be interpreted in the light of its cultural context, as Jim and Candy mentioned, that God didn't dictate the Bible to its authors, the books to their authors. There's, there's something more complex going on there. And of course, uh, people who are theologians, people who are Bible scholars might say something like this. N.T. Wright, who is probably the, the preeminent New Testament scholar in the world, says that all of the Bible is culturally conditioned. So when we read the Bible, we do have to engage in the task of interpreting what it means. It's not as easy as just reading something in the Bible and say, okay, I'm going to do that, because you would find yourself doing a lot of things that we don't really do anymore. For example, this pastor, Adam Hamilton, uh, is a pastor in Kansas City, and I, I showed a, a video of, of him last week for the sermon. And and Adam wrote this in a blog post back in 2019. He said, because I love the Bible and have studied it daily most of my life, I also recognize how wonderfully complex the book is. Books. While Paul teaches us that the Bible was inspired by God, the biblical authors were not mindless amanuenses simply taking dictation. They were human beings writing in particular times and places and for particular purposes. We see their personalities in their writings. We recognize their differing writing styles and vocabularies, their life experiences, and their historical context shaped their faith, theology, and ethics. So what does that mean? The Bible in different parts says that one nation could kill another nation and go in and take their land. Well, that's genocide. We, we don't believe in committing genocide now. 
There are parts of the Bible that say, say if, a, if a child is disobedient, they should be stoned to death. Most of us wouldn't be here. We, we don't take that passage literally. We don't beat our, children's with rod, we, our children with rods to discipline them. We don't tell slaves to obey their masters. And all of these things, yes, require interpretation as you, as you engage with the Bible and take it seriously. But we simply don't believe those things reflect the eternal heart and will of God. Even though we find those things in the Bible. So in, in, interpreting the Bible is more complex than just reading a few sentences and say, oh, I'm going to do that. The Bible says that I believe it and that settles it. Well, that, that's not really true. Um, all of us interpret the Bible, whether we acknowledge it or not, even churches and pastors who don't claim that they do, don't admit that they do. And so when it comes to this question of, of should we welcome LGBTQ persons into full participation in the church, like every other area of the Bible, that requires thoughtfulness and interpretation and considering the real world implications of what we're saying and, and how that affects people's lives here in the real world. Because we don't live in a vacuum and the way that we interpret the Bible gets used by politicians, um, by folks who have a clear agenda to marginalize, to exclude, and to, and to make laws. So for example, in 2015, state of Indiana, back when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, passed a law that businesses could refuse to serve LGBTQ persons on religious grounds. They could say, hey, uh, being gay is against my religion, therefore I don't have to serve you in my business. And business owners could turn people who are gay away because of that, citing religious freedom. Now, if you remember, much of the country at that time just renounced that. There were lots of companies that, that canceled events in Indiana who said, we're just not going to go back to this Jim Crow law era of the United States where we're making second-class citizens in the name of religion. We're just simply not going to do that. That law was repudiated by much of the country to the extent that Indiana had to change that law. And, and so that's just an example, though, of the real world implications of what we believe and how we interpret the Bible. Here, here's another one. During that time, back in 2015, there's a, a Christian radio host named Brian Fisher who tweeted this about that Indiana law when it was changed after there was a public outcry. And most of America wanted LGBTQ folks to be able to go into a business and be served like everybody else. And this uh, Christian radio host tweeted, the pressure big gay has put on Indiana is proof they are not about marriage equality, but homosexual supremacy. Okay. That's one interpretation. Um, so supremacy, that's an interesting word to use. And that word has been used quite a bit to describe the way that some people in our country feel about other folks. Generally, it's, it's been used in, in conjunction with the word white, white supremacy, and pointing out how throughout our nation's history, we had a civil war, we 
practice slavery and and that the ideology behind that treatment of other human beings was white supremacy and so this man has has adopted this word supremacy and said no it's it's that the people who are gay want homosexual supremacy well that's just interesting again we're th we're thinking about the real world implications of how we interpret the bible and what we believe because this man is a self-proclaimed christian he uh, earned a master's degree from uh, dallas theological seminary which is a, a seminary you know you where pastors go uh, to learn the bible and and i just perused the rest of his twitter feed and it turns out he's against wearing masks and the advice of the cdc and he thinks the washington redskins don't need to change their name he thinks that the black lives matter black lives matter protest after george george floyd's murder are the wrong thing to do he he's for the use of the discredited drug hydroxychloroquine to treat covid on july 8th of this year he tweeted hate crimes are so rare they have to be invented he was born in oklahoma and in 2010 he said in a blog that the holocaust was caused by homosexuals so when folks call him out for his extreme remarks and his remarks that could certainly be viewed as prejudice um, he claims that he's being oppressed that when he belittles folks who are just speaking up for their rights when he blames the holocaust on people who are gay and people call him out for that he's claiming that they're oppressing him and that's a tactic we've seen many times throughout the history of our country when the oppressors claim to be oppressed you know there were there were folks who believed that abraham lincoln was oppressing them when lincoln said that they could no longer own other human beings the oppressors claim to be oppressed so we can look back through american history and we can see clearly that there is an agenda of course, this guy would talk about the homosexual agenda or the gay agenda. Of course, you've heard that phrase, but there seems to be a much bigger agenda throughout the history of our country at work. And it's amazing how throughout the history of our country, that agenda has really been a package deal where just like this guy, you can go through his Twitter feed and you can predict the things that he'll be against. He's against people who are black speaking up for their rights. He's against people who are gay speaking up for their rights. He's against minority groups speaking up and saying, wait a second, we want to be treated equally. And you can just predict that, yeah, his beliefs are going to be a packaged deal. And they are a part of what you could call an agenda throughout the history of our country. It's an agenda that threatened to derail the writing of our Constitution. It was an agenda that led us to a civil war. It was an agenda that has opposed civil rights. It's an agenda that put in place Jim Crow laws in the U.S. history. There is a clear agenda throughout U.S. history to suppress people who just speak up and say, hey, I want to be treated equally. I want to be accepted as a, like anybody else. I want to be treated as fully human. There's been an agenda to dehumanize them, an agenda to push them back down. And so, so often, friends, the Bible has been used as the primary weapon in this agenda. 
the so-called culture war. And there are activists in, in the Deep South who call this the neo-Confederate agenda, the agenda of the Confederacy that split our country, threatened to split our country apart. And throughout that agenda, the Bible has been used as a weapon to club other people. It was used against our black brothers and sisters with this totally false, horrible misinterpretation of what's called the curse of Ham. And it's been used, of course, to bludgeon our brothers and sisters who are in the LGBTQ community who said, I just want to go through life and be able to have companionship. I want to be able to get married like everybody else. And, and the Bible has been used as a primary weapon to hurt them. Now, we have a few minutes left, and I want to take this a little bit deeper. And then we're going we're gonna to wrap it up with a, a story that Jesus told before we go. We're thinking about the real-world implications of how we interpret the Bible and what we believe about other people that we might think are different. You know, I don't think that LGBTQ people are different than me, but any time in human history when, when a group has perceived somebody else as different, of course, they will use whatever resources they can to try to back up that prejudice, including the Bible. And we're thinking about the real-world implications of what that means. So I'm going to show you a photo, and I want, I want to just ask, does anybody know what this photo is? Does anybody know what this photo is from? Um, we actually, we know the, the date this photo was taken. It was taken December 19th, 1938. We know the country it was taken in. It was taken in Germany. This is a photo from a Nazi concentration camp. And what we know from the Allies, once they won the war, and discover these concentration camps was that the Nazis put symbols on their prisoners. They color-coded prisoners. Jews were forced to wear yellow stars. Brown triangles were used for Romani people. Red uh, for political prisoners. Green for criminals. Blue for immigrants. Purple for Jehovah's Witnesses. And black for people they called asocial, which included prostitutes. And then they put lesbians in that group who had to wear black symbols. And then gay men in Nazi concentration camps were forced to wear a pink triangle on their clothing. Of course, this is a black and white photo, but that's a pink triangle that these men were forced to wear in Nazi concentration camps to discriminate against them, to create a caste system among prisoners. Now, there are Christians who love the Bible, and they love God, and they want to take the Bible seriously, and, and they would view... Uh, the passage is about L LGBTQ folks differently than I do. And I, I respect the right of people to believe what they believe. So am I saying that people who disagree with me are Confederates or Nazis? No, no, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that people who are use the Bible to back up their prejudices, to dehumanize other people. And the worst examples of dehumanizing and suppressing people have targeted people in the LGBTQ community and Jews and Catholics and blacks and Hispanics. And this is a pattern that we see over and over and over again 
in human history. And so often the Bible is used as the primary weapon of choice. So I wanted to end with this story that Jesus told. Um, comes from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 29. I'll read this part and then, and then we'll just kind of paraphrase the story that Jesus told. So from Luke 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies to him, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And the lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But this man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to test Jesus. And the, and the man gives the correct answer. But then he says, but, but who is my neighbor? And of course, he wants to define the word neighbor. Because if we can make some people not my neighbor, then I don't have to love them as I love myself. And in typical Jesus fashion, Jesus tells a story. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is talking to this man who is prejudiced towards Samaritans. We know that from history, and that's the, the cultural context behind this passage. This lawyer who is testing Jesus is prejudiced against this group of people called Samaritans that, that lived north of him, and, and the prejudice ran so deep. Uh, this lawyer, he wouldn't even pass through Samaria when he was traveling. He would go around Samaria, so he didn't have to be in touch with Samaritans. And so it's in this context of prejudice towards Samaritans that Jesus tells this story. Jesus says there was a guy who was traveling from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is, which is a steep um, journey down a mountain and, and twisty roads, and there are lots of places for robbers to hide behind a boulder somewhere and jump out and attack people, ambush them and, and, and rob them. And, and so a robber attacked this man and beat him nearly to death and, and stole uh, his belongings and, and left him for dead. And Jesus said, a priest came walking by on the road. And of course, this priest is supposed to love God and love people and love his neighbor. But the priest saw this poor man who had been beaten nearly to death. And the priest passes by and doesn't help the man. And then a Levite, somebody from a, a religious and, and, and political higher social class came walking down the road and sees this poor man laying there beaten nearly to death. And he passes by on the other side of the road and just leaves the man laying there. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan man who was traveling on the road saw this poor man who was beaten. And Jesus said that the Samaritan man had pity on him. And he, he stopped and he bandaged the man's wounds and he put the man on his own donkey that he had been traveling with. And, and he took the man to an inn. And he paid the bill in advance so the man could lay there, kind of like a hospital, and recover. And the Samaritan tells the innkeeper, when I come back, I'll pay whatever remaining amount I owe for however, however long this guy needs to stay here in order to get better and let this man recover. 
And Jesus is speaking to this lawyer who was prejudiced towards Samaritans. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And after telling the story in verses 36 and 37, Jesus asked this lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor toward the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Can't you just hear the mic drop through the floor? I'm, oh my goodness. Oh, don't test Jesus. Whew. So who is your neighbor? Jesus says to this lawyer, your neighbor is the person you're prejudiced against. Your neighbor is the person you think is your enemy. Your neighbor is the person you look down on. And God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus feels about anybody who is marginalized. That's how Jesus feels about anybody who is dehumanized, who is called names, who is excluded, who is left for dead. There are so many religious people who see somebody who is hurting, see somebody who's been attacked, see somebody who's been excluded, see somebody who's left there laying on their own, and they pass by on the other side. Jesus says what it means to be a neighbor and to view other people as your neighbor is is to take compassion, to have compassion, to take pity, to have compassion, and stop and realize we're all the same. These demarcations that we use are, are false social constructs. We're all human, and we're all neighbors. And God calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So I was so moved, as Jim and Candy shared, because... That was their journey. They realized their son's their neighbor. And they love him more than they could ever express. And there are so many folks who feel left out by church. And they're our neighbor. Just like everybody else. And I know so many people who are in the LGBTQ community who are committed Christians. They love God. They love the Bible. They want to follow Jesus. They want to bring their kids to church. And it can be so hard for them to find a community that will, that will welcome them. And so back in October of 2013, uh, I gave a sermon in this church called One Church that Jim and Candy alluded to. My wife and I started One Church back in 2012. And we, uh, we started weekly services in 2013. And, and then just a few months later, this was at the height of, of the struggle for marriage equality. And people kept asking me, Ryan, what do you believe about that? What does the Bible say about that? And are you going to welcome people who are in the LGBTQ community. What, what does our church believe about it? And, and so I gave a sermon uh, where I addressed how we interpret the Bible and, and what my attitude was toward people in the LGBTQ community. And, and uh, so this is going back in time a little bit. And uh, we're going to see a skinnier version of Ryan Gear. Um, but uh, I just wanted to show a two, two three-minute clip back from October 2013 uh, of... Uh, what I had to say about that at that time. Let's watch. 
some people ask me, you know, what do you do if somebody who's gay shows up at the church? And I say, good morning. <laughs> Welcome to One Church. And I, I give them a hug sometimes. How was your week? You know, and I'm, I'm not making light of this. I'm not. But I'm saying, I, I know well what the Bible says. And I know how many questions there are about how to interpret it. And I've, I've been thinking about, this sermon's been 15 years in the making. And here's where I fall on this. I take the judgment seriously. I believe that someday you will stand before God. I really believe this. And you'll give an account of your life. I believe that I will stand before God and I'll give an account of my life, not only as an individual, but as a pastor. I want you to hear this. If God says to me, Ryan, I wanted you to tell slaves to obey their masters. I wanted you to make women wear veils. I wanted you to tell Dina that she's a, a sinner and abomination and she's not, she can't participate here. If God were to say that to me, I am prepared for that. I've, I've thought long and hard about it. And I take that responsibility. So I don't take this lightly. If God says to me, Ryan, you used the brain I gave you, you did your best to sort through these questions, you didn't have all the answers, you didn't shove it down people's throats, but you did your best to thoughtfully interpret the scripture with what Jesus says is the main thing, verse 40, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets, and you let that be your guide, and if you were wrong, you erred on the side of love. If you were wrong, you erred on the side of love. If God says that to me, then I'll be all right. I'll get to go in. And so what, what I tell people is, I don't have all of the specific answers to all the questions people have, but I do have this, that what I've done is what, I, it's what, I, what I've always done, actually. I welcome people and I love people, and I don't make people second-class citizens in the church. I, let people, I love people who are gay just like I love people who aren't gay. And I, I just have decided I'm going to love people and I'm going to move on. And I see great things happening when we decide to love people. Now that guy fell into a late night chips and queso habit that has put a few pounds on him since then. And even better, I, I'm more confident in my ability to interpret the Bible than I used to be. And so that's why I say I welcome LGBTQ folks to participate in any church I pastor, full participation, period, end of story. No bait and switch. And uh, um, I believe if, if you're LGBTQ, if you're in the LGBTQ community right now, I believe that God loves you and I love you and I don't think anything's wrong with you and you're welcome here. And, and so I celebrate who you are and, and uh, I love you. And I'm glad you're here. And uh, when you talk about any topic that uh, folks have different interpretations on, you know, there are folks who will disagree with me. And, and I, like I always say, I'm okay if you disagree with the pastor. Are you okay if you disagree with the pastor? You can disagree with me and be a part of the well too. Most importantly, we're, we're not going to be like the religious people who pass by on the other side when folks are going to attack. When folks are attacked, we're, we're going to... Um, act with compassion 
and we're going to welcome people. And we're not going to inflict further harm on folks who have already been harmed in what we say or how we treat folks. And so uh, this is a place where the LGBTQ community can, can uh, be involved in full participation in a safe place. And so I love you. And for all of us, uh, this is how God views us. That's another point that Jesus was making in this story, that we are all that person robbed and laying on the side of the road. We all need help. None of us are perfect. We all are on a journey towards wholeness. We've all been scarred. We've all been beaten and bloodied. And God is not like these standoffish, backward religious folks who just pass by on the other side. No, God is like this Samaritan who meets us where we are and, and bandages our wounds and leads us to a place of healing and wholeness. I want to invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for this amazing scripture, the Good Samaritan. Thank you for Jim and Candy sharing with us earlier how their love for their son led them on a journey of viewing faith differently and being willing to interpret the Bible thoughtfully. And God, we're thankful for their example and for so many more folks like them here at the well and in other communities who realize how the Bible has been used as a weapon to bludgeon other people and exclude. We don't want to be a part of that, God. We don't want the Bible to be used as the weapon that leaves a person bleeding and left for dead. We want to be a neighbor like that good Samaritan who doesn't pass by in religious supremacy. but who acts with compassion and thoughtfulness and realizes we're all the same. We're all human. And this is how God views us as well. God, we need your compassion. Just like that person who was robbed and left for dead. We need you to accept us and love us as we are and to bandage our wounds and to lead us on a journey towards healing and wholeness. We all need that, God. And so thank you that that's how you look at us. No matter what we're facing right now, financial anxiety, anxiety over COVID, um, God, relationship problems right now that may be magnified by the shutdown, regardless of what we're facing, pain from the past, pain from rejection. Maybe we felt left out. Regardless of where we are, you meet us where we are and you lead us on a journey toward healing and wholeness. God, we thank you that that's how you view us and that's how you get involved in our lives and we welcome you to lead us to be whole. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.